Well, hey, listen, uh, especially within the vein of, of singing Hosanna, which is a de declaration that God saves, um, I want to read to you an update that we received this morning from Pastor Mark, who is currently in Friedberg, Germany, um, where our global partners, um, an orphanage in Ukraine, the Father's House, this is the place that they've evacuated to. Um, so he's written us a, an update. Um, it is heavy, um, but obviously it would be good for us to, to read that, to be praying um, for them, and then uh, we'll go forward from there. Um, it's, it's a couple of letters long, because if you know Pastor Mark, um, a paragraph just isn't going to do. Um, today, this beautiful medieval city in Dresden River was shrouded with gray sky and cold rain and all day. At night, I could hear the wind howling tonight as if it was interceding for the pain, traumas, and cries of Ukraine and the refugees present here. The weather seemed to be an appropriate tribute to the sufferings and displacements of the Ukrainian people. Today, today was another heartbreaking day as we listened to Roma, the founder and leader of this orphan ministry, share his heart. The temptation for all of us listening was to manage his grief and our own powerlessness with well-intentioned solutions rather than simply join him in his pain. I think today was a day set aside to explore, reflect, and simply dwell amidst the sufferings of our friend and brother. I wonder if the only reason we can manage to reflect on sufferings of Jesus for an hour or so each year is because we know that in 48 hours this dreadful day will be overtaken by Sunday's events. However, to spend a Friday sharing in the suffering of another while knowing that their upcoming Sunday will do nothing to change their pain or their circumstances is a different narrative, albeit more closely resembling the disciples' experience on that first Good Friday and Holy Saturday. A sample of today's stories. Continue to hear how Syrian refugees whose own villages were leveled by Russians continue to torment Ukrainian adults and children. Learned a couple of Russians inserting themselves into one of the four camps and indoctrinated two of our foster couples with the result that they have separated themselves from our people and kids. They are lost and not coming back. Exhausted caregivers that are now questioning if they should ever have left, even some of the children asking Roma what gave them the right to take them out of Ukraine even though everything around them is in rubble, or around there is in rubble. One of the men informed us that he, is off, he was offered a job that would pay $1,800 a month or 800 pounds a month and then left his responsibility to care for the children. We hear personal accounts from Bukia, Kiev, Mariupol. Roma's deep discouragement, depression, that his vision to reshape Ukraine's understanding for caring for orphans, the role of a redemptive foster care for services and single-parent families with a gospel-based context has reached a dead end and the gains over the past 25 years have crumbled for more. Furthermore, he is grieving that his life's work has been reduced to setting up a children's center in Germany, where even the possibility for adoption has been compromised because Ukraine has passed a new law forbidding uh, foreign adoptions. They have concerns about child trafficking and the depleting population. In Ukraine, the work of Father's House had many tracts of outreach that impacted the nation and tragically no shortage of orphanage, orphans and foster children needing care. Now the focus is on taking care of these children in Germany who will age out of our care by the age of 18. It is painful to walk with a man who is deeply grieving a life's vision and work that he is powerless to continue and looking at a future where he cannot see a place for himself. At one point, at one point he said, I'm not needed here. Finally, and I could keep going, 
There's very real concern that Roma does not see a return to Ukraine possible because he fears that he has lost his voice, influence, and respect because he had not stayed behind. Already he's experiencing a cold shoulder and even threats from those who remained in Ukraine. One of our board members asked him, Roma, 248 children are alive today because of your efforts. Is it not worth it? After prolonged silence, he weakly said, I don't know. I don't know. Such is the depth of the anguish and displacement. Today, Saturday, we visited a youth hostel about one hour outside of Freiburg. It is capable of housing the children and resident staff, but we have some concern about the location being too isolated. While it holds promise for consolidating every, everyone to one location, we have concerns about it being too distant, with one of the consequences being that it will require online education when the children start school. Also, I think the staff need more frequent opportunities to learn the language and be around German people and culture. But it may come down to this place or a long-term stay in the refugee camps where we are spread across four locations that make coming together very difficult. We will seek to negotiate a lease with an exit ramp in the first six months and on to Sunday. Today is worship. Here was an undistracted opportunity to be with children. It is clear their physical needs are well looked after but no level of care can adequately address the emotional and spiritual torment they endure. Their lives as orphans, foster children in Ukraine was already a trauma-riddled life, but the father's house represented stability, which the war has stripped away. There is weariness on their faces despite the resilience of childhood. They still play, laugh, smile, and hug, but it seems a desperate attempt at normalcy rather than the spontaneity of a child. Perhaps I'm projecting this on them. How can people help? Continue to be financially generous. We are purchasing another truck so we can increase our humanitarian aid. We have a small convoy deporting for Bucha and Kyiv Monday. Kyiv deliveries are delivered to those operating from our campus who are caring for those who have lost their housing and are in need of assistance. A minimum of 20% of your gift goes to this aid. However, we also are building our own war chest of funds that will allow us to rebuild a ministry to orphans in Ukraine when the war ends and to repurpose some of our campus to providing housing for the surrounding neighborhoods that have lost theirs. Funds are essential as we seek to provide for the children we evacuated. A plan is emerging where German social services will come alongside with some level of resource, but our cost of doing business here will increase. Also, we will need to purchase a large bus capable of transporting up to 60 plus children at a time, depending on, how, depending on where we finally locate the children here. So it is important that we have funds ready to expense when we sign contracts, negotiate leases, purchase vehicles, etc. Prayer will be the glue that holds this all together before the Lord. And then he put a picture of there in here with, which was a kingdom moment of a brother named Norbert and Roma. The per first person from Norbert's family to go to Ukraine went as a Nazi soldier and killed Ukrainians. His eyes turned up as he recounted this to Roma and me. He leads the ministry that has welcomed Father's House to Freiburg and has less, uh, and has less the efforts to identify and negotiate a location for us. Norbert said this, the kingdom of God belongs to, to the nations and there is only one church and she belongs to no nation. God, how I love kingdom hearts. And then a note about it, how you could give to Father's House, and I'll just tell you it's a link to the front page of our website on there, and under the giving, you'll see a, a link uh, that's for Ukrainian giving. But let's enter in, into prayer. Father, we lift 
um, Roma up to you. We lift up all these, these children, these beloved children to you. We lift up um, the board members that are out in Freiburg right now. And this morning, it is with even more texture and depth that we say, Hosanna. You are the God that saves. And, and that declaration is one that says, you even seek to save us in our present troubles. That what we get is a picture of you on Palm Sunday confronting the places in which people have been wronged, in which people have been oppressed, in which people have been taken advantage of, and you flip the tables. And so, Father, I pray that this morning that what we would see you do in, the, in Kiev, in Ukraine, is that you would flip the tables in the name of justice that you would put an end to this war, that you would stop the invasion that's taking place, that lives would be saved. Jesus, we pray again, Hosanna. We look to you because you who are a good and just king, would you reign in goodness and justice? Would you come and put a stop to the violence and the tragedy and the evil that is taking place? And we pray that you would encourage the brokenhearted we thank you that you are a God that sees the weak, that you are a God that sees the orphan, you are a God that sees those that are taken advantage of. And so we pray again, our humble God, would you lift up the downcast? Would you come and do a powerful work? Would you encourage our brother Roma today? Would he know the abiding presence of your spirit with him? And would he see that you will restore what the locust has stolen. Father, do a good work for our brother. And so we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. I want to start us this Palm Sunday in 1 Kings. You'll see why here in a moment, but I'm in 1 Kings chapter 1. I'm looking at verse 32. Let me set up a little bit of the context here for you. Um, King David's, one of King David's sons has claimed the throne for himself and this has set everything into chaos people trying to figure out who is the rightful king let me back up even a little bit further who's king david he's the king of israel at this time uh, and again his son has just seized control of the throne word comes to him and this is the response king david by the way is is bedridden pretty close to his death the King David ordered, call Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah son of Jehoiada. When they came into the king's presence, the king said to them, take Solomon, who is King David's son, and my officials down to the Gihon spring. Solomon is to ride on my mule. There Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet are to anoint him king over Israel. Blow the ram's horn and shout, Long live King Solomon. Then escort him back here, and he will sit on my throne. He will succeed me as king, for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Amen, Benaiah son of Jehoiada replied. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, decree that it happen. And may the Lord be with Solomon as he has been with you, my Lord, the king. And may he make Solomon's reign even greater than yours. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah son of Jehoiada, and the king's bodyguard took Solomon down to Gihon Spring with Solomon riding on King David's own mule. There Zadok the priest took the flask of oil from the sacred tent and anointed, oil, anointed Solomon with the oil. 
Then they shouted, or they, they sounded the ram's horn, and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon. And the people followed Solomon into Jerusalem, playing flutes and shouting for joy. The celebration was so joyous and noisy that the earth shook with the sound. As we move to the book of Luke here in a moment, we'll see that Jesus is incredibly intentional. He's making a statement to everyone. There is currently an imposter that is on the throne, and the rightful descendant of David is here to sit on the throne. The gospel authors amplify this by highlighting the crowds shouting, praise God for the son of David. And in Luke, we'll hear him write this, blessings on the king. Let's read the story of Palm Sunday. After telling the story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the miracles, wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And he replied, If they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into, che into cheers. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God had visited you. Then Jesus entered the temple, and he began to drive out people selling animals for sacrifices. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. After he taught daily in the temple, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the other leaders of the people began plotting how to kill him. But they could think of nothing because all of the people hung on every word that he said. Obviously, it's a bold move where Jesus is evoking Israel's most treasured memories. And he's coming in, and he's saying that all of those treasured memories are pointing to him. He's the promised king. You could see how this would cause a stir within the city. This is a charged story. It is filled with tension, hope, hostility, wonder, and terror. 
And we're left to look at this and say only Jesus could simultaneously be this bold and humble. As we go further in this morning, what I'd like for you to do is to have two mountains in your mind to help you out. I'll have a map that'll stay up on the screen. As you look at this, you'll, you'll see the route that, that Jesus took this Palm Sunday. He started in the town of Bethany, moved up to Bethpage, in the Mount of Olives, down this hill where it says Garden of Gethsemane. You'll see a little valley that's called the Kidron Valley, and then back up another mountain up to the Temple Mount. Again, I want you to keep those two mountains in mind. On this first mountain, the crowds rush out to meet Jesus. Word spreads throughout Jerusalem. Jesus is on the way, so they make their way out of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. They're rolling out the red carpet for Jesus, except this red carpet is made up of the garments of the crowd. They're taking off their coats, and they're placing them down for Jesus' donkey and Jesus to ride across. You know, earlier in the book of Luke, Luke quotes John the Baptist. When, or he, yeah, he catches what John the Baptist says when he, he's talking to the crowds, and he says, if you have two coats, give one of those coats to someone that doesn't have any. I think for us, in our context, it's easy to forget the fact that having one coat is just commonplace. I have an absurd amount of coats in my closet. Actually, just pretty recently, I, I went and was studying um, at a local restaurant, and I sat down on a patio chair, and I shifted my bottom a little bit, and when I did, my brand new pair of sweats that I had purchased got ripped by a, a piece of metal that was sticking out. And I went and told uh, the, the manager what took place, because again, they were brand new sweats, and they put me in contact with customer relations. Why do I tell this story? Is because the customer relations gave me money to replace my sweats, but it was more money than I had initially paid for those sweats. And so my first thought was, sweet, I'm gonna buy a new jacket. I have an absurd amount of coats. One of the things that I find myself just beginning to scratch the surface of when I read through the gospel narratives is costly worship. That as Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem, what you see take place is a people that just heap valuables at the feet of Jesus. We read of a lady that took a jar of expensive perfume it was probably about a year's worth of wages and pours it on the feet of Jesus. And, and the response of Judah was to say, why would she do such, such a thing that could have been used for charity? And we know that Judah's saying that because he was taking some of the cash for himself. But the reality is, I connect with Judah. Judas, excuse me, I connect with Judas. See, this, this act of, of worship that is just pouring out expensive gifts at the feet of Jesus makes me uncomfortable. And the reason it makes me uncomfortable 
is because I think, and likely you do as well within our culture, what is the impact that our giving is making? Yes, we worship Jesus, but we simultaneously think, what is the difference that it's making? What are the lives that are being changed? When I think about my family budget, the reality is, yes, I'm frugal, and I have a budget, but I also think the reason that I'm going I'm to have this budget is because I want to be able to have money to be able to provide for others as an act of worship. But because I, I think that that act of worship should have some tangible impact with it. But this kind of move, where people are taking off their good and only coat and placing it on the ground, and for it to be the carpet for a donkey to walk across. It is an act of worship that is that sole aim is the celebration of Jesus. It is not an act of worship that is also thinking, what's the impact that this is going to make? It's not an act of worship that's also thinking, what's the difference that this is going to make in my city and community? It's solely an act of worship that says, I'm laying it down at your feet, Jesus. I mean, think about it this way. Imagine that you're out on a walk within your neighborhood. And as you're walking around the neighborhood, maybe you have worship music on in, in your AirPods, or, and you're overcome by the, the tangible weight of God's glory there in that moment, just surprised by the presence of Jesus. And so you decide... you. This maybe normally doesn't happen for you, but you have your wallet on you and there's actually cash inside of it. And you just decide, I'm going to take the cash out, $100. Find an amount that just makes you absolutely uncomfortable, $10,000. And you just decide, I'm going to leave this here on the street just as an act of worship to Jesus and I'm going to keep on walking along my way. Most of us would, would then be able to, like, we would talk to our friends, or maybe we'd go home and talk to our spouse, and we would tell them what we did, and they would say, where? <laughs> yeah, you can worship Jesus, but what if we gave that to Hope for San Diego? What if we gave that like as an act of worship? But this act of worship that's taking place is just solely aimed at the fact that Jesus is there. And I want to hyper-spiritualize it. My temptation is to say it's just a metaphor for laying down all that we have. But what I see in this is, is a worship that makes me uncomfortable. It's just celebrating Jesus. That's the sole aim of it. And why do they do this? Because in Jesus, they see hope. In Jesus, they see salvation. Look, we look at a story like this, and, and we think, from our perspective, after the resurrection, we, we stop and we see salvation in the context of eternal salvation. We see it as God has forgiven our sins and we will be able to spend all of eternity with him. That is what salvation is. 
And, the, and this crowd obviously doesn't have that context in mind. And so we look at it from that lens. But I think that it would be good for us this morning to be challenged to look at it from their lens. They are looking at a king who will confront the oppression that they are facing. They are shouting, Hosanna, God saves, because the reality is they face very real opposition and oppression in their present day living. And if you look over the book of Luke, you will see that one of the themes that he weaves through here and through his gospel account is that salvation is about liberty. It's about jubilee. It's about freedom. And a tangible, rightful belief of our view of salvation is that we would become a good and just people that look out for the downcast. And that's likely why Jesus' brother, who later on writes a letter to us called the Book of James, says that good and, like, and, and right worship and religion is caring for the orphan and the widow. I think it would be good for us this morning to be challenged by their view of salvation. Hosanna, God saves. Because what they likely have in mind is what Jesus reads when he opens up the scroll in the, in the book of Isaiah, way earlier in the book of Luke, where he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. In this shout, Hosanna, We see that salvation is, that he deals with our oppression and our bondage. And he deals with the reality of sin in our lives. Palm Sunday, we shout Hosanna because we were once dead in our trespasses and now are made alive in Jesus. On Palm Sunday, we shout Hosanna because Jesus has inaugurated a kingdom where people are made free. We are made free by the rejuvenating, redemptive, saving move of Jesus, which now calls us to live differently and care about the bondage and oppression that people face today. The shout of Hosanna cares about the suffering of people. Looking back at the map, I love this picture that Luke paints for us. Because what's taking place is we're told that as he's coming down the Mount of Olives, heading into that valley, that Jesus begins to weep. And it's, what's so beautiful here about the picture that, that Luke gives to us is that Jesus is descending while the crowds are lifting up praise. It's this upward movement of hope in the hearts of people as Jesus is descending into the valley that has a, the, the shadow of his death casting over it. And I think in that place, Jesus teaches us a lot about lament and sorrow. 
as the Lord and, and our friend Jesus goes into the valley, I can't think about, help but think about Psalm 23. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. A banquet of praise surrounds Jesus as he travels a valley in the shadow of his death. And here in this space, Jesus teaches us what it is, what it looks like to go through suffering and trust that God's hand is still upon us. Jesus teaches us about lament and sorrow. While crowds wave palm branches, tears begin to emerge in Jesus's eyes because he's overcome with grief for those that don't recognize him. And I think it's extremely important for us to see Jesus's humility and sorrow in this moment as he's descending this mountain, because he's about to head up another mountain where we're gonna see a fierce and confrontational Jesus. After the procession, where we get a picture of Jesus's weeping, there are two events on the other side of this valley. The two events are, is him clearing the temple, and Luke doesn't highlight it in here in his narrative, but Matthew and Mark definitely do, is you hear a story of Jesus rebuking a fig tree. He clears the temple of money changers, and he sees an olive tree that hasn't produced fruit, so he rebukes that olive tree, and it withers up. Let's talk about the first event. Jesus comes into the temple, and as he does so, the the, the temple courtyard, it's, it's filled with money changers. What you have to know about what's taking place in this time, is the time of the season is, uh, it's Passover. It's the time of Passover. And the city of Jerusalem during this time is likely around 50,000 people that live in this city. And about 150,000 pilgrims have made their way to Jerusalem for the Passover time. So you can just imagine that this whole mountain maybe probably has tents and, and temporary housing set up for people to be able to live in during the, the Passover. Well, if you're going to travel from the surrounding regions to this place, what you're likely not doing is traveling with your animals. You're, try, you're probably traveling pretty light, and so what you would do in order to make your sacrifices in the temple is that you would then go into the temple and you would purchase an animal so that you could make an offering before the Lord. One of the things that's highlighted in the Old Testament law is that, that if you didn't have enough money to be able to, or you can, if you were poor and you couldn't afford to, to bring a lamb or a goat as your offering, the law made, uh, made a way that you could still bring an offering and you could, you could give a smaller animal, a dove. And what Matthew, in his account, highlights for us is that Jesus flips over the tables and he also goes after the dove table. See, what was happening is those that were there in the courtyard selling the different animals to the, pilgrim, the people that made their pilgrimage here to Jerusalem, they were exploiting them. They knew that they had to make an offering for their sins, so why not jack up the prices? And so Jesus comes in 
And the table that he specifically sees is the table where the poor people are being exploited. That's the table that he goes after. He confronts the corruption and the oppression that's taking place. And what's absolutely incredible is that after he does that, Matthew tells us, well, I'll just read it to you. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Our worship, our being the dwelling place of the living God, is in contradiction to taking advantage of others. Think about it this way. It's Passover. What, are the, what is everyone celebrating in this, in this moment? The exodus. The free, being freed from the bondage of Egypt. And there, in that context, people are taking advantage of others. It's like the statement of saying, really, the poor have made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. The day God freed you from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, and you're going to take advantage of them on this day? Jesus confronts the exploitation that's taking place. Let's talk about the, the second move that Jesus does. In the Old Testament, you'll see examples of Israel represented by a fig tree. And you'll even see some of, sometimes a fig tree that bears no fruit. And so Jesus comes out of the temple, and there he sees a fig tree that hasn't produced any fruit, and he rebukes it, and the, and, and the fig tree withers. After Jesus does that, he makes a really curious, and it seems like disjointed statement. He does this, then he turns to the disciples and he said, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and don't doubt, you can do things like this and much more. You can even say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. You can pray for anything and if you have faith, you will receive it. I think that what we've done in, in viewing this, right, it feels a bit disjointed. Like, how does that connect with this? Are we just supposed to go around rebuking trees because they're not giving us avocados? Like, it just doesn't feel connected. But what you'll notice is, is that in every time this story is told by the gospel authors, they don't say you could say to any mountain. They say you could say to this mountain. Which mountain is Jesus standing upon? It's the Temple Mount. Jesus is making a powerful prophetic statement that this mountain, the Temple Mount, is going to be destroyed. This, this statement here isn't just a statement about radical prayer. It is a statement that shows us that, that it's a day of reckoning. It's a day that those that have exploited and oppressed and taken advantage of others, 
a day where people have set up a corrupt system now have to stand in front of Jesus. But can I make sure to say this? God is not done with Israel. He loves Israel. It is tragic, the anti-Semitic sentiment that the church has perpetuated in our history when we look at Holy Week. God continues to pursue the people of Israel. Jesus' confrontational posture this weekend that we cannot get around is towards a leadership that has lost its way. And remember, he weeps because they don't embrace or recognize him. But it will be through a movement of Jewish women and men that the whole world will come to know the name of Jesus. Yes, the temple will be destroyed, but God will do a good and new thing, once again showing his unending faithfulness and love for his chosen people. The church has historically held two mountains in tension. God is a God of mercy. God is just. We hold these two mountains in tension with one another. That Jesus, that Jesus is to be celebrated because he saves, but Jesus also confronts corruption. And what Palm Sunday does is shows us that Jesus navigates these two mountains. If the worship team could come back up. Palm Sunday teaches us that we are to be a people that, that celebrate. We're to be a people that praise. We're a people that sing and declare that God is good. To know that his eye is upon the blind and the lame and the downcast. That he is here to rightfully sit on the throne that belongs to him. This mountain is the place where we recognize that he is good and he is for us and he is with us. He is a God that loves and listens to us that we could come to him in our places of a bondage and oppression and injustice, and we will find that he saves. But we also learn on Palm Sunday to repent. That we learn to come before him and say, God, if there is any wicked way within me, lead me in the way of everlasting. That what Palm Sunday does is helps us to hold those two places in tension in proper tension with one another. He is a God of mercy. And we can call on out to him in our time of need. But he is also a God of justice. And that compels us to be a people that live differently. That care about the suffering in the world around us. And even evaluate our own places of wickedness. Even to evaluate God, is there anything within me that you would like to confront? And both of those moves by Jesus, the coming in on a donkey over the Mount of Olives, 
rightfully seated, declaring that he is the rightful descendant of David, we worship him. And he's also the God that flips over tables. Both of those moves are an invitation to be in relationship with him. Both of those moves are an invitation to come near and to know his heart. That in him, we'll find help in our time of need. And in him, he will teach us to live differently. Church, would you stand with me? Jesus, again, we sing Hosanna. You are the God that saves. You are the God that sets us free. So Father, we come before you and, and ask, would you continue to do that work of salvation within us? Thank you that we are citizens in your kingdom, that we belong to you that we are yours and nothing could snatch us out of your hand. But Lord, we also pray, continue to do a good work within us. Continue to make us more and more like your son, Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for your saving work in our lives. And we pray that in your name. Amen. Let's enter into song together.